This week, Cedro plan confirmed after reaching global resolution with SVP parties. Reorg issues report analyzing Diamond Sports' dual approach to managing debt load while raising new capital for launch of DTC product. Malincroft continues to battle with Akhtar claimants. And Promessa Oversight Board ready to move forward with confirmation of Commonwealth plan of adjustment. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Boulan will be joining me for the week in review. For this week's deep dive, we have a replay from our Covenants 101 webinar series, where Peter Washowitz, head of Reorg Covenants, provides a primer on reading debt docs to identify potential sources of value leakage, such as dividends and transfers to restricted and unrestricted subs, and he also demonstrates how to calculate value leakage under bank debt and high-yield bonds. It's Friday, October 29th. On Tuesday, Judge David Jones confirmed the C-Drill debtors' plan reorganization and approved the debtors' backstop commitment letter with certain consenting lenders who had agreed to backstop the $300 million first lien exit facility contemplated under the plan. Debtors announced at the outset of the hearing that they reached a global resolution with plan objector SVP only 30 minutes prior to the hearing. The backstop includes a 4.25% equity commitment fee and a $20 million cash backstop fee, down from $22.5 million pursuant to the SVP settlement, in favor of the backstop parties. Cedril is targeting emergence from Chapter 11 in approximately 60 days, according to a press release issued by the company shortly after the hearing. Testimony from David Hilty of Hulhan Loki, the debtor's investment banker, revealed that because the market for offshore drillers moved up quite significantly, Hulihan revised the organized debtor's total enterprise value by approximately $140 million higher across the range, including the valuation analysis attached to the approved disclosure statement. As revised, Hulihan pegs the reorganized total enterprise value at approximately $1.933 billion to $2.536 billion, with a midpoint of $2.234 billion. Hilti emphasized that stock prices for all the comparable companies has moved up significantly, with Valencia Laris up over 40%, Noble up 30%, and Transocean up 11%, demonstrating that the view of the market for offshore drillers has increased significantly since Hulihan's initial valuation was done. The plan will equitize $5 billion of the debtor's secured debt across 12 separate collateral silos, effectuating a massive deleveraging and streamlining the debtor's capital structure into a single silo by allocating the $300 million of new money subscription rights, the second lien take-back debt, and the reorganized equity across the 12 silos according to relative collateral values. When Cedril emerges from Chapter 11, the reorganized debtors will have approximately $900 million of debt in a streamlined silo capital structure. Judge Jones applauded the parties for their hard work on this extremely complicated case that arose during an uncertain time of the industry. After confirming the plan and approving the backstop, the parties discussed certain issues that have arisen in relation to proposed Northern Ocean Settlement, with the court ultimately asking the parties to confer and determine whether there is in fact a settlement in place. The hearing on the Northern Ocean Settlement is currently scheduled for October 29th. This week, Reorg issued a report and cash flow analysis on Sinclair Broadcasting subsidiary Diamond Sports, examining its dual approach of both managing the company's debt load amid declining fundamentals and attempting to raise new capital for the company's intended launch of a direct-to-consumer or DTC product. In the report, Reorg examines potential transaction timing considerations, DTC structure considerations, the relative benefits of the CLEN's proposed transactions to Sinclair and Diamond, and changes to the recently CLEN's proposals compared with their prior iterations. Sinclair CEO Chris Ripley on the company's August 4th second quarter earnings call maintained that the DTC product launch remains on schedule to launch in the first half of 2022. Ripley also said that Diamond Sinclair still needs to secure DTC rights from several Major League Baseball teams. He also said that Diamond needs to complete renewals with several NBA and NHL teams after the completed 2020 to 2021 season, and that while the company is having productive conversations and negotiations with the leagues, 
the deadline will be helpful in driving the launch to the finish line. Five days after Diamond cleansed the proposals to its creditors, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred on October 12th at the CAA World Congress of Sports indicated that Sinclair Diamond faces significant hurdles to launching its DTC product. According to the Sports Business Journal, Manfred said that Sinclair does not have enough digital rights from enough clubs in order to have a viable direct-to-consumer product. He also asserted that MLB intends to own and control any DTC platform connected to its local rights. Speaking on the alleged economics of any DTC, Manfred also said that, quote, an ownership stake probably understates it. We believe those digital rights are crucial, and we want to own and control the platform on which they're delivered. We may have partners in that process, end quote. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver took a more constructive tone on the NBA's relationship with its regional sports networks at the CAA World Congress of Sports. He acknowledged that the cable bundle is broken and added, quote, We're seeing now an issue that's very topical at the moment, our regional sports networks, Sinclair in particular, and we're trying with them to work through those issues. If you are interested in accessing Reorg's in-depth coverage of Diamond Sports, please reach out to a Reorg sales representative. During a lengthy discovery hearing and status conference on Monday, Judge John Dorsey deferred ruling the Malincroft debtors contested motion to expedite their action for a declaration that a proposed amended Curascript distribution agreement does not violate federal antitrust law until after the Akhtar claimants filed their anticipated motion to dismiss the action and serve their initial discovery request on the debtors. The judge directed the Akhtar claimants to file their motion dismissed by November 9th. A preliminary voting report from Malincroft's plan filed on Monday showed that creditors holding claims in Class 3, firstly known holders, Class 6A, Akhtar claimants, Class 6B, generics price-fixing claims, and Class 9H, other opioid claims, which includes co-defending claims, voted to reject the plan at each debtor as of October 13th. Malincrod also filed refreshed financial projections in an 8K on Tuesday evening. The updated projections, which include a 4-5% reduction in 2022-2025 net sales as compared to the initial projections, were developed in September by management to account for observations and performances since the company's strategic plan was developed in January. Separately, Sanofi Aventis USLC continues to insist that it is entitled to payment of Akhtar Gel-related royalties from Malincrod, filing a redacted reply on Wednesday night in support of its motions for a pre-confirmation determination on the debtor's ability to reject the royalty obligations and for temporary allowance of Sanofi's claim for voting purposes. The brief attacks the debtor's argument that they can reject the asset purchase agreement by which Malincrot predecessor QuestCorp acquired the rights to Akhtar without paying royalties to Sanofi. On Thursday, the Promesa Oversight Board cleared a major hurdle in Puerto Rico's bankruptcy, announcing that it is willing to move forward with the confirmation process for the Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment after reviewing Act 53 of 2021, the Title III exit legislation that cleared the legislature and was enacted by Governor Pedro Pierluisi earlier in the week. The Oversight Board concluded that the legislature's changes to the amended legislation form the basis for the issuance of new general obligation bonds and contingent value instruments contemplated in the proposed plan of adjustment. The legislation, formerly House Bill 1003, was amended in the legislature following an urgent status conference by Judge Laura Taylor Swain on Monday focused on the impasse over the Title III exit measure between the Oversight Board and the government. It was passed by both the House and Senate and signed by the governor late Tuesday. At the conclusion of Monday's status conference, Judge Swain ordered the legislature, executive branch, and the Oversight Board into confidential mediation to attempt to work through the deadlock reached over the Title III exit legislation and denied the Oversight Board's request for an adjournment of certain confirmation-related deadlines. In addition, after PROMESA Oversight Board Executive Director Natalie Juresco said that the Oversight Board was prepared to pull the plan from consideration, Judge Swain ordered the Oversight Board to refrain from doing so until mediation had concluded. Given its acceptance of Act 53, 
The Oversight Board stated Thursday that the confirmation process can proceed without further mediation and with appropriate adjustments to the proposed confirmation order. The confirmation hearing is scheduled to start on November 8th. On Friday, Judge Swain entered an opinion denying the motion for an allowance of an $800 million administrative claim filed by the DRA parties, consisting of Amerinational Community Services as servicer for the GDB Recovery Authority and Cantor Katz Collateral Monitor. As a preliminary matter, Judge Swain established that the DRA parties have prudential standing to pursue the motion. The court also found that the asset restrictions within the governing documents do not preclude the DRA from pursuing the administrative claim. With respect to the administrative claim request itself, however, the court rejected the basic legal premise of the DRA party's argument, that the DRA has a property interest in the Act 3031 revenues in the possession of the Commonwealth. The opinion noted that the court has already considered and rejected substantially similar arguments from the holders of HTA bonds in two decisions. Top red stories this week included, Johnson & Johnson tries to open the floodgates to more mass torts and bankruptcy system, and Senator Warren places her trust in committees. DBMP and New Certainty to oppose efforts to unwind divisional merger through substantive consolidation. Delaware Court denies Warrior Met Cole ad hoc committee motion for summary judgment on unjust enrichment claim related to Walter's Chapter 11 sale. Hertz announces partnerships with Carvana, Uber. And now here's Jim from Houston with the Week in Review. Well, morning all and welcome to the week ahead, the theme of which is earnings. Beginning with Monday, November 1st, results from Transocean, Avis, Valaris, and Weatherford, among others. Tuesday, November 2nd, lots of E&Ps with Comstock, Laredo Petroleum, W&T Offshore, Gulfport, and Chesapeake, among others. Wednesday, November 3rd, Calum Petroleum, Penn, Virginia, which is in Texas, Talos Energy, and Summit Midstream. Thursday, November 4th, Clearway Energy, EPR Properties, and Unity. Friday, November 5th, Vistra and Cinemark. And this is, of course, just the tip of the iceberg. There's a few court hearings in there, too, for you loggers. And for all this and more, please see our weekly calendar released early every Monday. And thank you very much. Back to New York. For this week's Deep Dive, we have a replay of our Covenants 101 webinar series where Peter Washkowitz, head of your Covenants, provides a primer on reading debt docs to identify potential sources of value leakage such as dividends and transfers to restricted and unrestricted subs, and also demonstrates how to calculate value leakage under bank debt and high-yield bonds. Peter also discusses value leakage on previous transactions done by PetSmart, J.Crew, Claire's, and Neiman. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for the latest installment of the Reor Covenants 101 webinar series. I'm Peter Washkowitz, Head of Reorg Covenants, and today I'll be providing an overview on value leakage. Please note that if you'd like to revisit this webinar later, a replay of today's discussion will be available on the Reorg Media page within 24 hours. Today's webinar will provide an overview of value leakage, including dividends, transfers to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, and unrestricted subsidiaries. I will answer questions at the end of the presentation, so please feel free to submit your questions at any time using the Q&A widget, which is located on the left-hand side of your screen. So let's get started. What is value leakage? Value leakage is when a borrower or an issuer shifts assets, um, especially collateral assets, outside of the restricted group. Uh, these types of uh, shifts of assets primarily result in liens on pledged property being released and the value of the assets of the guarantors uh, being reduced. Uh, I'll, I'll discuss later uh, PetSmart's transactions, uh, which had another uh, consequence uh, which is the first uh, type of transaction of that kind that I've seen. Um, now, as a secured creditor, the risk of value leakage is that the collateral backing your debt will be less. Uh, and just as a general creditor, the strength of the guarantees are going to be weakened, 
with the, uh, with the reduced assets of each of the entities. Uh, so this chart is, is, a, um, is an illustrative um, kind of capital structure of a typical sponsor-owned company. Um, you have the sponsor at the top, you have a hold co-guarantor, uh, then you have the borrower, uh, and then underneath the borrower you have guarantors and you have non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. Um, the borrower, guarantor, and non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries constitute the restricted group, which are the entities that are restricted by the negative covenants. The assets of the borrower and the guarantors, which is in the purple box, um, is where the guarantees and the collateral are. So there are three main types of ways that value can be leaked. Um, there are dividends, which is uh, movement of the money up to the sponsor, and then there are two kinds of transfers. One, to, uh, the transfers to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, and the other of, uh, are transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries. Uh, we'll get into each one of these uh, in the webinar, but I just wanted to give a broad overview of what we will be discussing today. So dividends are um, the most straightforward uh, kind of value leakage. Uh, as I said, it's movement of assets, which include money, uh, cash, uh, equity, or you know, just property, um, and it's movement of those kind of assets upwards to equity owners. Um, in structures where you have a parent company or a hold co that has debt, and then you also have an opco that has debt, um, typically, the parent company has no assets of its own other than the equity of the OPCO, and it's going to rely on funds from the OPCO to service its own debt. Um, so the way that the OPCOs can fund its parent's debt is through dividend capacity. Um, capacity for dividends under credit agreements and bonds typically come from general restricted payment baskets, uh, CNI or retained ECF builder baskets, um, and leverage-based baskets. There are, there are other baskets in, in some agreements, but these are kind of the standard ones that are in pretty much all of them. So uh, this is a question that actually comes up a lot. Um, so, uh, a lot of people are not, uh, are not very clear on what the difference between non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries and unrestricted subsidiaries, unrestricted subsidiaries are. Um, it's not surprising given this is, these are kind of a legal construct and really um, outside of debt documents, there, there really is no difference. But within debt documents, um, non-guarantor restricted Subsidiaries are typically um, are typically a company's foreign subsidiaries, um, and as you see in this chart below, um, under debt documents, there are there are very few differences between non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries and unrestricted subsidiaries. However, the two differences um, that the, that the EBITDA of non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries are included in the borrower's EBITDA for leverage ratio purposes, and that non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries are subject to the debt documents negative covenants, whereas unrestricted subsidiaries are not, are, are very crucial differences. Um, and as we'll discuss further in this webinar, um, it really makes a big difference um, based on whether a company transfers assets to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries or unrestricted subsidiaries. Uh, so let's dig a little deeper into transfers to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries first. Um, as I said, the non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries are typically a company's foreign subsidiaries that do not guarantee uh, U.S. debt. Uh, typically, it's, it's for uh, deemed, deemed dividend purposes. Um, also, there are immaterial subsidiaries and non-wholly owned subsidiaries that would also be qualified as non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. Um, as when we get into the discussion on PetSmart, um, through following uh, PetSmart's uh, transfer of Chewy Equity, Chewy also became a non-guarantor restricted subsidiary. Um, capacity for transfers to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries typically come from general investment baskets, 
uh, the CNI or retained ECF builder baskets and leverage-based baskets. Um, most credit agreements will also have a uh, dedicated basket, uh, basket for additional investments uh, in non-guarantor subsidiaries. Now bonds, however, and this is one of the biggest differences between bonds and credit agreements, bonds typically allow cash and assets to freely be moved within the restricted group, including non-guarantor subsidiaries. So in bonds, uh, you know, a borrower can transfer all of its assets to a non-guarantor subsidiary um, because that's as long as it stays within the restricted group. Um, this, this distinction is very important, and uh, crucially, in recent years, uh, more and more credit agreements, especially those um, those by private equity-owned borrowers, are being drafted like high-yield bonds, um, and will also permit cash to freely move within the restricted group, uh, including to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. Uh, the reason that transfers to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries um, would lead to value leakage is uh, because non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries are not guarantors and do not provide credit support under debt documents. So to the extent uh, a borrower or an issuer transfers collateral assets to a non-guarantor restricted subsidiary, uh, the liens on those assets will be terminated. Um, so you can see the problem in bonds where um, there are unlimited investments in non-guarantor restricted Subsidiaries, there is always a risk that um, liens on all the, all the collateral can be released. That's, uh, obviously, that, that's probably going to be offset in the credit agreement, which generally has caps, but it, it, it is a risk, especially in capital structures where it's, it's, all, uh, it's all bond debt. Um, so if a borrower, uh, uh, a borrower issue transfers assets to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, um, those subsidiaries are not free to do what they want with the assets. So that, that actually is also important. So even though that the, the liens on the assets are going to be terminated, um, it's not like the non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries can take all the assets that were just transferred to them and raise all the debt at once or use those assets to pay dividends uh, because they are still uh, restricted by the negative covenant. And now we uh, turn to the transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries. Um, this is one of the biggest risks to creditors and um, together with secured debt capacity, um, are the two biggest issues that we talk with subscribers about. Um, pretty much the rest of this webinar is going to focus on transfers to unrestric unrestricted subsidiaries just because they pose probably the greatest risk for value leakage of uh, any of the three um, types of, of value leakage transactions. Um, now, transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries become more likely as companies become more distressed and they start looking for creative or alternative ways to um, increase their flexibility under debt documents. Um, now, what, what's important to understand is that, you know, uh, although a lot of these debt documents are, are particularly aggressive these days, there have been very few actual transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries. However, um, as you can see in this quote in the slide, um, in this slide uh, when Apollo owned the EP Energy uh, filed for bankruptcy a few weeks ago, in its first day filing, it did say that among the strategies that it was contemplating uh, to try, you know, in an attempt to avoid filing for bankruptcy, uh, was investing uh, assets in unrestricted subsidiaries. So, as you can see, uh, as they were nearing um, the time when they were going to need to file for bankruptcy, um, that's that's exactly when the um, the thought occurred to, you know, look to see if they could transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries. Uh, so, capacity uh, for transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries uh, typically come from the same baskets. Um, where you can also do transfers to, to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries um, in general investment baskets, uh, CNI or retained ECF builder baskets, 
um, and leverage-based baskets. Um, usually there, there's also going to be a basket that is dedicated to investments in unrestricted subsidiaries and uh, baskets, um, baskets for investments in similar businesses uh, can arguably also be used for uh, additional investments. Uh, now, as, as I said, with uh, non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, um, is the same case with unrestricted subsidiaries. They are purely an artificial construct that only exists within these debt documents. Um, they provide companies with a way to create a siloed structure that exists outside of the restricted group um, and is not subject to um, limitations imposed by negative covenants. Um, reasons why companies would, would have the need for unrestricted subsidiaries would be if they have a business line that has you know, significant negative EBITDA that would reduce the company's EBITDA under the debt documents, um, or if, it, if a company had a high growth business um, where um, it needed to allow that company to be able to, to act fast to, you know, to make an acquisition or to do some kind of transaction, and they didn't want to have um, the process slowed down by, the, by them having to go to the lenders to get uh, consent. So I think those are probably the two main reasons to have unrestricted subsidiaries. There are probably some others, but I think these are the two main ones. So like transfers to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, um, any collateral assets that are transferred to unrestricted subsidiaries would result in the liens on those assets uh, terminating. Um, the biggest risk and the reason why uh, transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries are um, infinitely greater than the risks posed by um, uh, transfers to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries is because unrestricted subsidiaries are not subject to the negative covenants. Um, so if, you, if a borrower were to transfer assets to an unrestricted subsidiary, that subsidiary could pretty much do anything it wanted with those assets since it, um, it's not subject to the debt limitations, to the investment limitations, anything under the debt documents. Um, so, and and what, what these transfers do are, are they can allow companies sometimes to have additional flexibility that it otherwise wouldn't under its debt documents. So, for instance, in J. Crew's case, and J. Crew is probably the most infamous of these uh, transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries, uh, J. Crew transferred IP to an unrestricted subsidiary, uh, which used the transferred IP to raise debt that was secured by that IP and uh, used the proceeds to purchase a portion of J. Crew's parents' debt that J. Crew was not permitted to purchase itself under its debt documents. So this type of unrestricted subsidiary transfer uh, provided additional restricted payments capacity to fund purchases of uh, the parent debt. Now, Claire's case, um, that was a, a less well-known case, and I actually think that might have happened before the J. Crew uh, transfer. Um, in, J in Claire's case, uh, it also transferred IP to, to an unrestricted subsidiary, uh, which then raised secured debt uh, to use in an exchange um, for certain of Claire's outstanding debt. Uh, so whereas J. Cruz transfer provided more RP capacity, um, the transfer, Claire's transfer provided uh, additional secure debt capacity, which was used to restructure all of Claire's outstanding debt. Um, now, in both these cases, uh, J. Cruz and Claire's uh, also signed licensing agreements with these unrestricted subsidiaries under which uh, J. Cruz and Claire's would pay them uh, an IP licensing fee, um, which fees were then used by the unrestricted subsidiaries to service uh, the debt that it had raised from the transferred IP. Uh, so I wanted to highlight uh, the PetSmart's uh, transaction where it uh, transferred certain portions of equity of Chewy, uh, just because this involved uh, both a dividend and a transfer to unrestricted subsidiary. It's also one of my favorite names that I cover, so um, I know it uh, intimately. 
Um, so under PetSmart's uh, capital structure, as you can see, um, what it did was um, it took 20% of the equity that it owned in Chewy, which it had just acquired, I think, about a year or two ago, um, and it dividended 20% of Chewy's equity to, um, to its hold co, which then um, you know, su subsequently transferred it to the sponsors. Uh, Chewy, uh, PetSmart also um, uh, created an unrestricted subsidiary and transferred 16.5% of Chewy's equity to that newly created unrestricted subsidiary. Um, now, unlike J. Crew and um, Claire's, where there's a clear need to, to do an unrestricted subsidiary transfer, uh, it remains to be seen exactly why, um, why PetSmart did this transaction. I, I mean, some people have speculated that, um, you know, it essentially gave uh, BC Partners back um, its equity contribution uh, that it used to fund the Chewy deal. Um, it, Chewy also did have negative EBITDA, so it did help PetSmart's EBITDA under the, doc, under the debt documents. But, um, you know, a 36.5% stake, it, it didn't uh, materially reduce or materially increase PetSmart's EBITDA. So, um, whereas I can tell you why Jake Rue and Claire's did their transfers, it's still not definitively clear why PetSmart did this transfer. Uh, so the result of uh, these equity transfers is it, pretty nutty. What happened is um, Chewy became a subsidiary of the, uh, of the unrestricted subsidiary and of PetSmart, but because it also was now owned, 20% uh, of Chewy's equity was owned by a company that was um, above PetSmart in the capital structure, Chewy was no longer a wholly owned subsidiary of PetSmart. Uh, what this resulted in was Chewy becoming a non-guarantor-restricted subsidiary, uh, given that um, guarantors can only be wholly owned subsidiaries. So what happened, because Chewy was no longer a, uh, a guarantor-restricted subsidiary, was that um, all of Chewy's assets, which um, you know, most people probably have said are kind of the most, the most valuable of uh, PetSmart's assets and kind of the high-growth business, all of those assets um, were no longer being used to secure PetSmart's debt, which was substantial. Um, so as you can see here, what happened was Chewy dropped down a level from the guarantors to below, um, and then it also moved over to the non-guarantor restricted subsidiary box. So PetSmart's debt, um, I think it, it incurred a significant uh, billions of dollars of debt to finance the Chewy acquisition. All that debt was still at PetSmart, but the collateral backing the debt um, did not include anything from Chewy. So um, they use, you know, so it essentially was all the assets that PetSmart had before Chewy. Um, so PetSmart had a significant amount of debt um, with not uh, relatively a, a significant portion of its assets securing that debt. Um, all right, so here's a pop quiz. So let's say a borrower is not permitted to pay any dividends under its debt documents, but it is permitted to transfer $500 million of assets to unrestricted subsidiaries. Since, as I mentioned, the unrestricted subsidiaries are not restricted from paying dividends under the debt documents, uh, could this borrower transfer $500 million of cash to an unrestricted subsidiary and then have that unrestricted subsidiary pay a $500 million dividend? Uh, if you get this right, I don't know what you would get, but, um, but what do you think? Uh, so most restricted payment covenants uh, restrict borrowers and issuers from directly or indirectly making restricted payments. Uh, subject to capacity under permitted baskets. Uh, because the covenant permits uh, the borrower, uh, prohibits the borrower from making indirect dividends, um, the borrower actually probably couldn't transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries um, and have that unrestricted subsidi subsidiary immediately fund a dividend um, from a different box. Um, 
So, you know, there hasn't, I haven't seen any kind of, you know, court cases about this, but I'm not sure exactly what would happen if a company transferred assets today and then two years from now that unrestricted uh used those assets to pay a dividend. But um, it's pretty clear that it couldn't, it couldn't kind of do it um, at the same time. However, there is one basket that uh, companies can use, and it's the one I've quoted in this slide. Um, this basket allows uh, companies to distribute uh, by dividend the equity of unrestricted subsidiaries. So last year, uh, this basket was relied on uh, by Neiman Marcus, um, which um, paid a dividend using the equity of its My Teresa unrestricted subsidiary to its sponsors. Uh, so there are a few additional baskets and mechanisms in credit agreements specifically that uh, could significantly increase a borrower's capacity to transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries. Uh, the most infamous of these baskets is uh, something that we call the proceeds basket. Uh, I've seen people call it the trapdoor basket. Um, but whatever it is, it's the basket that J. Crew relied on to transfer IP to its unrestricted subsidiary. Um, I've quoted, a, you know, kind of what the basket, uh, what the basket allows. Um, the wording may be slightly different in credit agreements, but it essentially um, allows the company's non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries um, to pay general purpose uh, to, pay, to make general purpose investments um, that are financed with the proceeds uh, from permitted investments that were made in that non-guarantor restricted subsidiary. So essentially, if I have a basket. Um, actually, you know what? On the next slide, I actually get right into it. But um, so this is the proceeds basket. Again, um, we get calls on this a lot, you know, with subscribers asking whether this is in debt documents. Um, it's a very important basket uh, when you're talking about value leakage. I had forgotten I had this slide. Um, so as you can see in the picture below, what the proceeds basket allows is it, what it does is it essentially turns uh, these baskets that, um, that can be used for, for making investments in non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries and it turns those baskets into general purpose baskets. Um, as you can see on the left-hand side, uh, typically uh, the non-guarantor restricted subsidiary investment basket allows for investments to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, but there the, the whatever is being used uh, to make that investment, it has to stop. It's not like the non-guarantor restricted subsidiary could then use the transferred assets to do what it, wa what it wants with the assets. However, with the proceeds basket, as you can see, it allows the non-guarantor subsidiary to, um, to go around that restriction and use the $50 million of proceeds that were made in it through capacity for uh, a permitted investment to, uh, to make an investment itself. So essentially in what happened in J. Crew's case is J. Crew made an investment in a non-guarantor subsidiary, and then it relied on the proceeds basket to use the, the proceeds from that investment to make a subsequent investment in an unrestricted subsidiary. Uh, for the most part, we usually see proceeds baskets in credit agreements, not in bonds. Um, remember that bonds allow for unlimited investments in non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. Um, so to the extent bonds do have a proceeds basket, it essentially allows borrowers to make unlimited investments in unrestricted subsidiaries through the proceeds basket. However, as you can see in the slide below, we have found two situations where a company has the proceeds basket in both its credit agreement and in certain series of its outstanding bonds. In Endo's case, um, it had a proceeds basket in the credit agreement and its two series of secured notes, but not in any of its unsecured notes. So there, the risk is, is somewhat muted, uh, given that the uh, unsecured notes will restrict you know, unlimited investments in unrestricted subsidiaries. 
Um, surgery partners also, they have a credit agreement that has a proceeds basket, and um, they have one series of notes that, had, um, that have a proceeds basket. Interestingly, um, rec earlier this year, uh, the company issued these new 2027 senior notes that also had a proceeds basket, uh, but investors were uh, able to successfully push back, and um, in the final version of those notes, the proceeds basket had been eliminated. But again, it is a big risk um, where a company has proceeds baskets in both bank and bond debt, um, given that the bond debt essentially does not limit investments in non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, uh, and then essentially wouldn't allow, would not restrict uh, further investments in unrestricted subsidiaries. Another uh, different kind of mechanic that can be used for um, additional capacity for transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries is this related sections mechanism that we've seen pop up in a number of um, Apollo-owned borrowers. Um, whether Apollo has a form of credit agreement, we, we've been unable to confirm, but it, it, it certainly suggests that it does, given that you know, here we have in this chart uh, Excellent Technologies and McGraw-Hill. Uh, we also found similar provisions in, uh, in Hostess, for example. What the related sections mechanism does is it allows uh, borrowers to use capacity under uh, certain investment baskets, and it allows uh, the borrower to, to use capacity within those baskets uh, for additional capacity in other baskets. Um, where the problems arise is um, in these Apollo credit agreements, there will be two baskets for um, investments in non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. And as you can see on the, um, on this, on the last row of the table, uh, the related section mechanism allows the borrowers to use capacity in the first basket for uh, investments in non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, and, and the borrowers can shift that capacity to the general investment basket. So effectively, it, it, it comes, it, 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 it's the same thing as the proceeds basket in that it's allowing capacity in one basket to be used um, for an alternative uh, means, uh, which essentially would allow for additional investments in unrestricted subsidiaries, even though that was not the original intention of the basket that is being used. Uh, so I think we're ready now to uh, look at how you actually would go about calculating value leakage under a multiple uh, document capital structure. Um, now, calculating value leakage under multiple, do under multiple debt documents is, is not as difficult as calculating debt capacity um, because you don't really care about you know, lean, lean priority. You just really want to, you, you just care about overall capacity. Um, for this webinar, we're going to look at uh, RealG's term loan and revolving credit facility and its recently issued 2027 senior unsecured notes. Um, now, the company does have an additional term loan and two other series of unsecured notes, um, but for this exercise, we're, we are going to ignore the baskets there. Um, but obviously, as a warning, you know, our conclusions here may not be actually accurate given that we are not looking at uh, the restrictions in their other debt documents. Uh, so as I said earlier, uh, in order to calculate value leakage, uh, you will generally, in, in bank debt, you'll generally look at the restricted payments and the investment covenants. So the chart below uh, summarizes the relevant baskets. Now, just like debt capacity, there are other uh, permitted restricted payment and permitted investment baskets, but those are for specific use like equity buybacks or uh, loans to officers. So uh, just like the debt capacity discussion, uh, we're just kind of focusing on general purpose baskets. The one thing to note here is that um, RealG's credit agreement has a post-IPO dividend basket. Um, most private credit agreements have these baskets that allow for either a, a certain percent of proceeds received from an IPO 
or a certain percent of the market, a certain percentage of the market capitalization of the public filer um, to be used to pay annual dividends. So here it's a typical uh, 6% of proceeds received um, that can be used to pay dividends every year. When RealG went public, uh, it, it received about $1.2 billion of proceeds, which translates to a $72 million annual uh, dividend basket. Um, so that's just something to take note of uh, in terms of an additional capacity to, uh, to pay dividends. Uh, so, so as I said, uh, calculating dividend capacity is relatively straightforward. Um, in RealG's case, it can use the cumulative credit uh, basket. Um, it would be able to use the leverage-based uh, restricted payment basket, but it's not able to meet the required leverage test. Um, and it can use the post-IPO dividend basket uh, to pay dividends. Uh, in this case, there, uh, there is not a general restricted payments basket, uh, but there typically is in most credit agreements. So today, under its credit agreement, uh, RealG can pay $247 million of dividends, which uh, includes $175 million starter basket um, under the cumulative credit, um, plus additional amounts based on uh, the greater of 50% of CNI or retained uh, excess cash flow, um, and it can also pay $72 million of dividends every year. Uh, now, this is uh, just uh, one quick thing. Uh, when you're calculating uh, value leakage, the, these cumulative credit build or builder baskets they can be used for uh, dividends or investments, but they can't be used for both. So if you have $100 million of capacity there, uh, you can use $100 million for investments, $100 million for our restricted payments, $50 million for each, but you just can't exceed the total value, but it can be shared uh, across transactions. So um, under the investments, um, the RealG can use the cumulative credit and the $550 million general investments basket. Um, to give it $725 million of general purpose investment capacity, uh, plus it could use additional amounts based on the greater of 50% of CNI or retained uh, excess cash flow. So all this capacity can be used to transfer assets to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries or to unrestricted subsidiaries, given there is no restriction on what kind of investments can be made using this type of capacity. Uh, so there is additional uh, capacity to transfer assets to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries under these two dedicated baskets that provide the company with $720 million of capacity. As you uh, probably have guessed at this point, uh, Realogy uh, is an, uh, an Apollo affiliate um, and it actually has the related sections mechanism. So here there are two baskets for transfers to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, um, but the, the, uh, the $500 million first basket can actually be used for general investments. So for transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries, although there is not a basket for investments in unrestricted subsidiaries, Realogy, if it decides, could use the $500 million uh, basket for non-guarantor restricted subsidiary investments um, to alternatively be used to make um, investments in unrestricted subsidiaries. So as I mentioned, um, when we are, so in concluding uh, how much uh, capacity there is for value leakage, um, there is shared capacity for investments in restricted payments, um, typically under the builder basket. Um, sometimes it's also, um, there are leverage-based baskets for each one that is based on the same test. So that is also a quasi-shared basket. Um, nevertheless, we do try to highlight the maximum amount that could be used uh, for any one of these transactions. So, you know, there is an argument, uh, and people will say, well, aren't you kind of double counting things? Uh, yes, we are, but we're just trying to show um, our subscribers the biggest risk. So, um, as you can see um, in the bottom, 
our conclusions here are the, the maximum amount, although um, the company cannot do all three of these transactions. Um, but, so to conclude, um, in addition to the amounts below, um, which do include, which each includes $175 million cumulative credit starter basket, which obviously could only be used once, uh, Realogy has additional capacity based on the greater of 50% of CNI or retained excess cash flow. Um, for dividends, um, it, it could it could make up to it could pay up to 247 million dollars of dividends today, and then it can also uh, pay an additional 72 million every year using capacity under the post-IPO dividend basket. Uh, for transfers to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, it could make in total up to 1.445 billion dollars of such in uh, transfers or it can make $1.225 billion uh, of transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries. Uh, again, remember, for the transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries, um, that is using the $500 million uh, first basket for investments in non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. Um, so to the extent Realogy did that, uh, transfers to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, uh, permitted transfers, would be reduced by $500 million. Uh, so the biggest difference between uh, bank debt and bonds when calculating uh, value leakage is that um, whereas in credit agreements there are typically separate covenants for uh, restricted payments, investments, and free payments, um, in bonds the definition of restricted payments includes uh, prepayments and investments. Um, and bonds also have a defined term for permitted investments, which usually include uh, additional capacity uh, for general investments. Uh, investments in similar businesses, and investments in joint ventures. Uh, and so this is important. So uh, because an investment is treated as a restricted payment under bonds, um, issuers have additional investment capacity using capacity under uh, restricted payments baskets. However, because restricted payments um, are not investments, issuers do not have additional uh, capacity to pay dividends using capacity under permitted investment baskets. This is a concept that... Um, it took a while for me to actually kind of grasp. It, it makes sense now, but um, all you have to know is essentially investments can use all capacity under the restricted payments covenant, but uh, restricted payments cannot use capacity under permitted investments. Uh, hopefully it will become clear uh, in the next slide when we go through capacity, uh, but this is a crucial difference between bank debt and bonds. Um, so as you can see here, uh, the baskets are relatively similar to uh, what was under the credit agreement. Um, although there is a, a general restricted payments basket, but it can only be used for investments. Um, and there is a basket for investments in similar businesses. Um, this is a basket where some people um, kind of say that uh, this basket cannot be used to make uh, investments in unrestricted subsidiaries. Um, I kind of take the view that I, I try to take the most aggressive view, uh, looking from the point of view of, you know, how can a sponsor use these baskets for any kind of capacity. Um, generally, similar business definition is kind of any business that is related to the business of the issuer. Um, and unless the definition says, uh, explicitly says that unrestricted subsidiaries are not similar businesses, um, I always kind of um, ascribe these baskets to allowing um, additional investments in unrestricted subsidiaries. Uh, so similar to uh, the credit agreement, uh, dividend, uh, dividend calculation is, is, is very straightforward. Uh, here, there is a cumulative credit basket, um, but it is based on 25% of consolidated net income, uh, just given um, uh, Realgy's current leverage um, 
steps down the, the percent of CNI that, that fills in the builder basket. Uh, the cumulative credit also does not have a starter basket. So under the notes, uh, Realty's only um, capacity for dividends is the, uh, the post-IPO dividend basket of $72 million every year, uh, plus it can make additional um, uh, dividends out, uh, based on 25% of consolidated net income. Um, investments are a little different. Um, again, as mentioned earlier, uh, unlike bank debt, the bonds will typically allow um, uh, unlimited investments within the restricted group, including in non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. So there, you know, we don't even have to get into an analysis of capacity for transfers to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries because there are no limits. Um, now, for capacity for unrestricted subsidiaries, um, they, uh, Realty can use capacity under the general restricted payments basket, um, which here uh, explicitly says it can only be used for investments, but even where it doesn't, you can. Um, it can also use the general investment basket, uh, the investment in unrestricted subsidiary basket, and the investment in a similar business basket. Uh, so uh, putting it all together, um, under the notes, um, uh, Realty has, um, in addition to 25% uh, of CNI capacity for uh, dividends or uh, investments in unrestricted subsidiaries, Realty has uh, capacity to pay $72 million of annual dividends under the post-IPO basket, um, and it can transfer $900 million of assets to unrestricted subsidiaries using the $100 million general restricted payment basket, the $400 million general investment basket, the $75 million uh, basket for investments in unrestricted subsidiaries, and the $325 million basket for investments in similar businesses. Um, sorry I keep getting ahead of myself, but um, here's the conversation I had two slides ago about, um, about why I think um, companies can use their similar business investment baskets for additional uh, investments in unrestricted subsidiaries. Uh, so when trying to figure out a company's ability to, uh, to transfer value away from uh, creditors, it's always helpful to uh, make a table after you've come to the conclusion under each document. So as you can see here, uh, whereas the credit agreement allows for um, capacity of uh, the greater 50% of CNI or retained ECF, uh, the 2027 notes only allow uh, for amounts based on 25% of CNI. So that's probably going to govern um, unless retained excess cash flow is less than 25% of CNI. Um, under dividends, um, you can see that the notes are more restrictive and only allow for $72 million of annual dividends. Um, investments in uh, non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, obviously the credit agreement is going to be the more restrictive one because the notes do not uh, restrict those types of investments. Uh, so the company could do up to $1.445 billion of uh, investments in non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. And the notes are actually the more, the more limiting of the two uh, in respect of investments in unrestricted subsidiaries. So um, in total, that would allow um, not up to $900 million of investments in uh, unrestricted subsidiaries. Now remember, um, especially for the investments in non-guarantor restricted subs and investments in unrestricted subs, those two amounts are the maximum capacity, but um, you know, they each share certain amounts. So it's not like the company can do both. But uh, so these are just, this is just a maximum risk uh, if you are um, a creditor. Uh, so we're always asked, uh, you know, how could, how could um, debt documents just kind of stop these transactions from occurring in the first place? Um, while there are some ways, and I'll get to them in, in, the, in the final slide of this presentation, um, I, I do want to stress again that um, 
you know, there have only been a handful of uh, of these types of transfers under subsidiaries. Uh, in addition to J. Crew, Claire's, Petsmart, Neiman, um, Stable Permian also has uh, also been unrestricted subsidiary transfer as well. Uh, there are probably a handful uh, of others, but again, the, you know, this really does not come up that much. Um, however, you know, the attention that the, that this issue has garnered, I think, actually really does underscore how significant the risk could be. Um, you know, people, uh, lenders and, uh, and bondholders are always worried about these types of transactions, uh, even though, you know, based on history, it's very unlikely that, uh, com that their company would uh, ever, you know, even pursue any of them. If you really did want to eliminate um, companies' abilities to transfer uh, assets to unrestricted subsidiaries, it, it would be very easy. Uh, you, could, you could literally have a, a simple blanket uh, prohibition on transfers of, of collateral or even any assets uh, to non-guarantors or more specifically to unrestricted subsidiaries. Um, I think, you know, given the, the amount of, um, of attention that, that J. Crew and Claire's has garnered, um, you know, there, there could be prohibitions on, on transferring IP to unrestricted subsidiaries, or you could just put an overall cap on total investments permitted to ever be made uh, in unrestricted subsidiaries. Um, I, there, there could also be, you know, an ongoing maintenance test uh, whereby um, all unrestricted subsidiaries um, are not a, are not permitted to hold a specified percent of total assets, and to the extent they did, uh, the company would be obligated to um, to redesignate an unrestricted subsidiary as a restricted subsidiary. Uh, the point is, it would be an easy fix, um, and it just you know I, I and and it just there has it, it just is generally not being made. Um, so I guess, you know, that would lead to the conclusion that, uh, you know, I guess, I guess banks or, or bondholders, you know, do understand that there is a need to provide these companies with some flexibility to have a siloed structure. Um, but, you know, I think if there were to be, you know, an onslaught of, of additional private equity-owned companies that did these transactions, I'd have to imagine that uh, these holes would, would, would start being, uh, you know, closed up. Um, and, and even, you, you know, you might start seeing kind of prohibitions on, this unrestricted subsidiary designation in the first place. And that concludes the slide portion of the presentation. Please make sure you have submitted your questions as I will now begin the Q&A portion of the webinar. Okay, so um, let's see. Um, all right, so here, the first question is, um, was there a proceeds basket in PetSmart and or Claire's debt documents? Um, there, there was not. So um, the proceeds basket is just kind of one mechanism to give additional capacity, but uh, particularly in PetSmart's case, they kind of just relied on, you know, general restricted payment, general investment baskets, um, and their, you know, the investment in unrestricted subsidiaries, um, and their builder baskets. So, um, you know, proceeds baskets do provide additional capacity, but in PetSmart's case, the baskets were just so outsized that um, you know, um, they, it allowed essentially, um, you know, the $908 million of, of, of dividend of Chewy Equity and $750 million of uh, the investment in the, um, in the Chewy Equity. So, yes, uh, proceeds baskets are kind of, you know, like a, um, uh, an alarm, you know, an alarm bell should be going off when you see that, but it's not necessarily the case that without them, these companies wouldn't have capacity. And in fact, um, in PetSmart and in Claire's, they just kind of relied on uh, normal basket capacity. Um, okay, so the next one is um, IP seems to be a common way for uh, retail to transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries. Uh, what are the common ways to transfer in the energy space? 
Uh, that's a really good point. So um, whenever we are covering companies, you know, we'll look at their balance sheet. And when companies kind of have um, a significant amount of intangible assets, um, you know, and, and they're kind of almost asset light and they're, you know, the PP&E is quite low, we always actually will discuss unrestricted subsidiary transfers because uh, as this question is kind of getting to, um, it's a lot easier to transfer IP because you can just transfer, uh, you know, um, a portion, you know, a percent of the ownership, um, and that's just kind of paperwork. Um, it is a lot more difficult to transfer kind of hard assets, um, although it's, it's, it's obviously not impossible. Um, you know, there, I suppose, you know, you could transfer interest in a well if you wanted to, or you could transfer, um, you know, drilling assets. Um, certainly would be harder, but not out of the question. But uh, yes, so um, we will always kind of point out uh, the risk of uh, unrestricted subsidiary transfers with uh, asset light companies. Uh, but, you know, in our coverage of EP Energy, for instance, uh, before it filed, you know, we did talk about unrestricted subsidiary transfers. Um, just because any asset can be transferred, it's just it's a, it's you know easier to transfer one than it is the other. Um, okay, given the uh, given the high profile examples of J Crew, Players, Revlon, etc., have we seen the market push back on these trapdoor leakage items? Uh, the quick answer is no, and it, it's surprising because um, after PetSmart, and and I, I forgotten to mention Revlon. Revlon's was a type of unrestricted subsidiary transfer. Um, it was also kind of a movement of assets to non-guarantor restricted subs because um, the the ultimate owner of some of this uh, some of the, some of those assets was owned by a foreign company. But uh, point is that is still another kind of one of these examples. Um, but after all of these examples, you know, we'll get a lot of calls, uh, and I'm sure our competitors will get a lot of calls, you know, from lenders and 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 bondholders, you know, kind of up in arms about how these companies can do it, and you know they want to push back, and so maybe for you know, the next, let's say, week or two, or maybe even month, um, you might see some kind of provisions that, that get to, you know, they get at blocking these transfers. Maybe you'll, you'll see reduced capacity. But generally, um, those kind of, those, th those are more fads. You know, after a month or two, uh, given how much money is out in the market looking to be, you know, looking for yield, um, these transactions are, they seemingly are all but forgotten a month after. Um, you know, we've started covering a lot of primary deals, and we have seen some some pushback from investors. And uh, one interesting uh, term that was pushed back on was um, so that the basket where you can transfer the equity of unrestricted subsidiaries, um, we saw an amendment to that basket. I believe it was in Allied Universal's bonds. Um, can't be positive, but I'm pretty sure it was it, it was in those bonds um, where that basket was amended to say that if the um, if the unrestricted subsidiary held any material IP, its equity could not be dividended. So that was actually getting exactly to the point of, you know, if the company ever did do an unrestricted subsidiary transfer of IP, um, bondholders would be more protected just because um, the equity of that unrestricted subsidiary would not be able to be dividended up to the sponsor. But, but um, generally speaking, there has not been um, a lot of pushback. And, you know, kind of the last few slides I had, uh, showed it, it'd be very easy. You could you could literally just say, um, you know, provide that unrestricted uh, transfers unrestricted, unrestricted subsidiaries are not permitted. But um, so far, that is that you know nothing even close to that has made its way into documents. And although there there might be a little pushback in the the weeks following any of these transactions, uh, it's forgotten pretty quickly afterwards. 
Um, okay, so well, are, are there certain companies where the risk of value leakage is greater? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I was kind of answering uh, the, the question before the last one. Um, generally, I mean, IP-heavy companies are, and, and retail in particular are the type of companies you will see. However, I mean, if you look at PetSmart's case, it wasn't that they transferred IP. They just transferred equity of a subsidiary. So, uh, you know, even in the energy space, um, you know, all these companies have subsidiaries. So, you know, they could also just transfer uh, equity of their subsidiaries. But, I mean, I'd say generally um, it would be companies that are asset light and that have a lot of, uh, have a lot of IP. Um, okay. Um, can a company just make one of its subsidiaries an unrestricted subsidiary? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I, I actually did not include that in the slides. Um, so if a, if a borrower or an issuer wants to um, create an unrestricted subsidiary, it needs to comply with um, designation provisions in the debt documents. Uh, they're not particularly onerous. It, um, in order for a company to designate uh, a restricted subsidiary as unrestricted, typically there's a, a no def a default or event of default. Um, you know, and, you know, in bank debt particularly, there's a requirement that that subsidiary uh, is not a restricted subsidiary under any other documents, um, that the, the subsidiary that's being designated does not have any debt that is recourse to the borrower or the issuer. And then the main one is that um, a designation of a restricted subsidiary to an unrestricted uh, subsidiary uh, constitutes an investment. So to the extent you have a restricted subsidiary, let's say $100 million of assets, if you were to designate that one as an unrestricted subsidiary, it would uh, use up $100 million uh, of your investment capacity. That's why in pretty much all of, in Claire's, in, in J.Crew and PetSmart, that's why uh, the unrestricted subsidiary in those cases were newly designated, were newly created and newly designated. Uh, because they didn't have any assets, they didn't use up any, uh, any investment capacity. But, so that's the process to designate. Now, if you want to redesignate unrestricted subsidiary as a restricted one, um, that's actually also going to, that, that's a debt incurrence. So to the extent the company, the unrestricted sub has $100 million of debt, um, you, would need, you would need $100 million of uh, debt capacity to uh, redesignate it. Similar with investments, although uh, a lot of debt documents have a permitted investment basket that allows um, investments in, uh, investments of unrestricted subsidiaries that are subsequently designated restricted subsidiaries. Um, so let's say I actually um, I think I just answered a question. A question just came in about uh, designation. So um, hopefully that answered it. Um, so um, um, so is there an argument that the proceeds basket does not actually work as uh, as J Crew intended, uh, i.e. the asset itself is not proceeds? Um, so we actually wrote about that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really good point. It's a, you know, that's probably more for uh, an accountant, although we did write about it. Um, in documents, the, the word proceeds is generally not defined. And so, you know, if you think about it, if I have, uh, if I have a cup of coffee and I, I, I give it to I transfer it to someone else, I mean, arguably that cup of coffee is the proceeds of my investment. Um, now, again, these documents could... Um, could you know make it clear that the the word proceeds is a defined term and capital P proceeds has to just be cash. So that would have um, that would have restricted J Crew from doing its transaction. But as it stands in the documents, without a definition of proceeds, um, arguably anything that is transferred to someone else um, that has any value could be proceeds. Um, 
Um, so what arguments can lenders use to argue against the leakage of value, such as in the PetSmart and other cases? Um, so, you know, the problem is, uh, we, we got a lot of questions after PetSmart um, about, you know, how can, can we block this? Um, is it possible that we can tell the company they, they were not able to do it? Um, the problem is, and in PetSmart's case, it's pretty clear, you know, because they didn't have a, a proceeds basket, so there's no kind of interpretation of it. Um, they just use uh, normal basket capacity. So if they had a general investment basket of $500 million, they relied on that. It, it's pretty hard to come back to the company um, after they use that capacity and say, you know, you were not allowed to, to, to use that, that basket for unrestricted subsidiary transfers. Um, you know, I feel that I, 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 I hear your pain, but um, these baskets are written very broadly, and it says kind of just general investments. So there's no uh, restriction on what types of investments can be made, uh, nor um, is there a restriction on who they can be, be made to. Um, in, in PetSmart's case, there was an argument that um, so the company had to meet a two times fixed coverage, uh, fixed charge coverage ratio to have sufficient capacity under its notes. Um, and so what happened in PetSmart is uh, lenders, uh, lenders ultimately sued, and one of their arguments was that the company, uh, while it said it was able to meet the two times fixed, cover, fixed charge coverage ratio, it relied on all these kind of, you know, hypo, uh, essentially fake uh, EBITDA addbacks. Um, that's kind of uh, the theme with, you know, that's kind of similar with kind of pushing back on the transactions at all. Um, the definition of EBITDA in the documents was very loose, kind of allowed for, uh, you know, unlimited cost savings for any kind of transaction. And, um, and uh, you know, so it, it was very loose. So the company just said, you know, you might think it's fake. They, and they could have even said, you know, we don't even know if they're really going to happen, but, you know, you let us do it. And so we're just, we're just doing what's permitted under the document. So the point is, I, I, there isn't really much that lenders could use to argue against the leakage. Um, especially if a company is just using its um, its normal uh, its normal uh, you know basket capacities. All right, so I think we have time for uh, one more question. Um, so are there are, are these limitations also present in uh, investment grade credit documents? Are are those even more permissive? Yes, those are those are far more permissive. Um, so in in, in uh, investment grade documents, there's the negative covenant package is typically just uh, restrictions on liens. Uh, and maybe it's aggregated with, uh, with, with sale leasebacks. So, uh, so there, yeah, I, there, there are no restrictions on transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries. There, there are not even any restrictions on dividends. Um, I guess the theory being it's, it's an investment-grade company, um, you know, so there's, 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 I guess, no worry. But, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. If you think about it, um, the investment-grade documents are pro possibly, you know, using an, an analysis that's more, uh, price suitable for high yield documents and, and distress documents. Uh, there's tons more uh, flexibility, um, just given there are no restrictions. Um, all right, and that's all the questions uh, I have time for today. Uh, and remember, a replay of today's presentation will be available on the Reorg Media page within 24 hours. Um, if you have a few minutes, please take the survey that will appear on your screen in a few moments. Your feedback is very important to us, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.